Welcome back to Out of the Cold, a monthly podcast exploring unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. Today we're exploring the baffling 1989 murder of Margaret Terry. Now in homicides, the victims often fit into two categories. On one side, you've got the victims who live high-risk lifestyles. They deal in drugs, they're gang members, they work as prostitutes. Basically, they've made life choices that put them at greater odds of becoming a murder victim. Then you've got victims like Margaret Terry, a 68-year-old grandmother and widow with a passion for politics, baseball, and family, and who loved to curl up with a good book. She also preferred to stay at home, where she tended to be something of a pack rat. She'd never had money, and to help make ends meet, Margaret had sold Avon out of her home. Sadly, she was a woman who had experienced more than her share of unthinkable heartache. Margaret had two children, and she would bury them both, something a mother should never have to do. In 1943, she and her husband Buster lost their first child, four-year-old Kenneth, after the boy suffered a severe seizure. Now, Margaret's granddaughter, Renee Roach, said her grandmother had shown her old photographs of Kenneth and occasionally talked about the only son that she'd ever had. But there was something Margaret hadn't shared that Roach would soon learn about in letters she found after her grandmother's death. Prior to Kenneth's death, Margaret had been diagnosed with tuberculosis and forced to leave her family for months to receive treatment in a Colorado sanitarium. She was not supposed to get out until like December and wound up, for whatever reason, I guess she was doing better, whatever, got to come home early. He died that week she came home. Adding to her anguish was a car wreck that severely injured Margaret's 21-year-old daughter. Carol had been rushing to the hospital to be with her father, who had suffered the first of many heart attacks when the crash occurred. So Margaret would be sitting by her husband's side in the ER, wondering what was taking her daughter so long, when she learned that Carol was already there, one curtain over and in grave condition. The wreck left Carol, a mother of two, in a coma. Though she would eventually awaken, her injuries would leave her partially paralyzed and virtually bedridden. She died four years later in 1966 while undergoing a related surgery. Yeah, like I guess it's just like, you know, what, what, what else gone could you put her through? I mean, it just seemed not fair. Refusing to succumb to self-pity, Margaret instead focused on her grandchildren, taking on the role of mother. Renee had been just eight when her mother died. Her little brother, Richard, was seven. She showed Renee how to cook. She'd even be the one to later tell the girl about the facts of life. And I remember being t totally horrified when she told me I was in fourth grade. I'm like, no, I don't want to know about these things. Well, someone needs to tell you, you know? But she was always just out for my, mine and my brother's best interests. So she had no money, and so she knew she couldn't offer money to us. But it was support of, you know, I love you and I just want you to know that. And you felt, you definitely felt that with her. So less than 10 years after losing her daughter, another heart attack would claim Buster Terry's life at the age of 60, leaving Margaret a widow. Renee says after her grandpa's death, she saw a lot of changes in her grandma. And that's understandable considering her heartbreak. Margaret didn't leave the house very much anymore, sometimes preferring to stay in bed most of the day and read novels while chain smoking Paul Mall cigarettes. Renee says she now realizes that this was all likely due to depression. But Margaret did manage to find the motivation to make some changes that Renee realizes today are so amazing given what she'd been through. A housewife who'd never had her driver's license, Margaret learned how to drive after her husband's death. 
She worked for a while at the Salvation Army, teaching the disabled to sew, and later dished out barbecue, fried chicken, and all the fixings at Underwood's Barbecue. And she took over her late husband's job as Democratic precinct chair, taking her grandkids along with her to state conventions and teaching them what it meant to be a yellow dog Democrat. So through the years, Renee and her grandma talked almost daily. And she could talk some serious baseball, Renee says. It turns out Margaret's father had been a well-known minor league pitcher known as Ed Beartrax Greer. He'd played several seasons for the Fort Worth Cats in the 30s and 40s, as well as for some other teams in Denver, Memphis, and Little Rock. Now, as a little girl, Margaret had somewhat resented her dad's job because of the constant traveling and moving that the family had to do. Because of that, she couldn't have toys or you got what you could hold in your hand and that was it. But the exposure did foster a love of America's favorite pastime for Margaret. And as a result, Renee grew up listening to, watching, and talking baseball with her grandma. In fact, in their last phone conversation, on the night before Margaret was found murdered, they chatted about Nolan Ryan registering career strikeout number 5,000 two days earlier. That Thursday night phone conversation had occurred about 10 p.m. on August 24, 1989. Renee was about to turn in for the night, but not Margaret. She was a night owl who routinely stayed up until 3 or 4 in the morning, then would sleep till almost noon. Now, the phone call had been ordinary. Renee had no reason to think anything bad was about to happen to her grandma. In fact, things had recently been looking up for Margaret. A lifelong friend whom the Terrys had known for years had recently reconnected with Margaret. Like her, he was now a widow, and the two had begun seeing each other. So they started, you know, just being friends and visiting, and then the next thing I know, then she's like, he kissed me. She called me. I'm like, Grandma, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to know about this. Renee said her grandma's new boyfriend had coaxed Margaret out to dinner a few times, frequently visited her, and had given her a new reason to smile. That had become a spark in her life. That was a good thing because as much as she was so just, I can't even get out of bed, you know, I'm going to read all day and I'm not going to get out of bed kind of thing. She had gotten to where she would even get up and put on a little bit of makeup and kind of stuff like that. But he was just really caring and checked on her every single day. But on that August 25th, Margaret wasn't answering her phone. Something wasn't right. Growing concerned, the boyfriend eventually calls a nearby neighbor of Margaret's, Isla Brown, asking her to check on the woman. Brown, a close friend who had a key to Margaret's home, stops by the house, and inside she finds her friend's lifeless body. I was uh, at work and I got a phone call um, actually from a neighbor, that one of my grandmother's neighbors that said, um, you need to come right away. Um, it's your grandmother. When I got there, there were, you know, all the, I mean, the neighborhood of people all around and crime scene tape and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, and that's when I found out. I remember I just sat down in that neighbor's yard and just cried. I couldn't even, you know, get up or do anything. Margaret's body had been found on the floor by her bed, her nightgown askew. There were signs of a struggle and an autopsy would later confirm investigators' suspicions that the woman had been sexually assaulted. She had died from blunt force injuries to her neck and head, the medical examiner's office would later rule. They didn't take her wedding ring, which had diamonds in it, so they were little, but still, you know, seems like if you were there to steal, you would have done that. I guess it could be somebody that just was popped up on drugs and just, you know, I want to rape somebody or I want to, you know, I don't know. I mean, none of that makes sense to me. Margaret's house, which sat on the corner of Ford and Moberly Streets in southeast Fort Worth and within eyesight of Forest Oak Middle School, had no signs of forced entry. 
Renee said she had watched her grandmother's neighborhood go downhill with the growing drug epidemic that had gripped the city and whole country, but her grandmother had not been worried. And to her, everybody was great. It was like, oh, it's fine. It's I'm sure everything's fine. But you then you'd read in the paper, on Ford Street, this happened. I'm like, Grandma, that's your street. And they're saying that there was a drug bust or, you know, whatever. She still felt safe there, but I do know that she definitely had become more guarded, especially as far as making sure that the doors were locked at night. Now, the condition of the interior of Margaret's house would prove challenging for investigators. Renee said her grandmother had a tendency to hoard things, especially after her husband's death. In fact, as she rummaged through her grandmother's belongings after her death, Renee would find boxes upon boxes of empty mayonnaise and pickle jars in the garage. Another box was filled with newspaper sleeves. Was it her way to cope with the grief or something else? She always said it was because of the moving around as a child so much that she never got to keep anything. And so because of it, she didn't want to get rid of anything. Inside Margaret's home, boxes of Avon products were stacked high, in some places almost to the ceiling, with only a pathway in between in which to walk. Detective Manny Reyes, now retired, was the lead homicide detective on the case back then and can still envision the cluttered house. That is what made it extremely hard as a crashing as to what is it that was missing, what was it that was taken. Worst of all, what was it that was touched? Reyes said police went to great lengths to try to find fingerprints that would point to Margaret's killer. He remembers how they sprayed a special chemical on the stacks of boxes that filled several rooms of Margaret's home, a chemical that when processed causes fingerprints to glow purple. It provided no clues. Renee said her grandmother was poor and that the boxes of Avon makeup and costume jewelry were probably the most valuable thing in her house. In the end, investigators could never confirm that anything was taken from the home. What really hurt us on this also was when they started cleaning out the house a day later or two days later, they put boxes outside. And some of those boxes contained that cheap little jewelry that they would give out or you buy something, you get an extra deal. And that started being passed around the neighborhood. People would come by and just grab stuff. And then they would call, hey, so-and-so's got stuff in the house. So here we go, looking at it. We were just chasing trails that were being made after the offense. But the trails all led to dead ends. In the first couple years after her grandmother's death, Renee would call homicide investigators religiously, believing it was just a matter of time before it was solved. Eventually, she'd be told that the detectives would call her if they had anything to share. Her calls eventually trickled to every anniversary, then every five years or so. My grandmother's sister died this year, and I think that was, it was like, now I don't have anybody left on, in her family anymore. Her sister lived in, the, in Florida, and we didn't talk a lot, but we talked a few times a year, and every time we did, she'd always, you know, is there ever anything, you know, did you ever find anything about Margaret? Was there any, you know, anything? I no, and so I just, I don't, this year I just had it really on my mind that I thought, I'm not gonna just let it go, I'm gonna call again. So when she called earlier this year, Jeremy Roden, the Fort Worth Police Department's latest and only cold case detective, agreed to take another look into the case. Now, Roden worked as a homicide detective, handling the fresh murders, for seven years before transferring to cold case. And the differences between investigating new and old murders are day and night. 
First, today's technology gives homicide investigators a far bigger advantage in identifying suspects than in cases from several years ago. And Roden says nothing beats being able to personally see the crime scene, talk to witnesses yourself, basically work the crime from beginning to end. When you pick up a case that's 20, 30, 40 years old, even 10 years old, you're relying on what the detective then did. You don't get to see the crime scene as it was. You get to look at photographs. You don't get to talk to the witnesses face to face. In some cases, the witnesses can't be found or they're deceased. Um, if you do get to talk to the witnesses again face to face, sometimes time can alter what they remember. It doesn't change the specifics, but they might not have as much recollection 40 years later as they did on the day that it happened. So who would want to murder a sweet grandmother? Did it have something to do with her politics? Maybe someone who had come to her house under the ruse of buying Avon? Rodin says the original investigators checked out Margaret's work in social circles for clues. That's always a focus of any investigation when someone is found deceased. They weren't able to develop any obvious suspects from whether it be the people that she associated with doing her political work or with her Avon customers. Does the fact that there's no forced entry lead you to believe that she may have known her killer? It definitely opens up the possibility that she could have known the person. But the possibility also exists because she kept such a, a night owl lifestyle that she could have been outside doing something and could have been followed back into her house. Detectives back then looked into known felons who lived in the general area, convicted rapists, burglars, and murderers. Renee said she remembers police back then checking into a man that was supposed to pick up some makeup from her grandma. She says they also looked closely at a road crew that had been resurfacing Margaret Street at the time she died, wondering if maybe a crew member may have knocked on her grandma's door early that Friday morning and been let in. Because of her grandma's tendency to sleep late, though, Renee never bought into that theory. And I just can't imagine her going to her front door at 6 o'clock in the morning. I don't even know if she'd have heard the door. <laughs> so she would have been so, I mean, unless they'd really been banging hard, but I just can't imagine her even getting up to go to the door at that time. Police did collect a vital piece of evidence at the scene that may have come from Margaret's killer. In 1989, we were in the early stages of using DNA and things like that. It was still in its infancy really, as far as criminal investigations go. They did make attempts at collecting evidence like that. There are some things that were done and things that were collected that could possibly point to a suspect, but so far none of those, none of the things that they did back then have totally come to fruition yet. Now for investigative reasons, Roden doesn't want to disclose exactly what that evidence was but he will confirm that a DNA profile of the possible killer was eventually obtained. Now that's hopeful, because if a suspect does surface, it gives investigators a way to link him to the crime. And in June 2008, that DNA profile was entered into the CODIS database. Now CODIS, short for the Combined DNA Index System, is an FBI national database. And what it does is it compares DNA profiles obtained from biological evidence found at a crime scene or maybe in a rape kit against those of offenders arrested for, charged with, or convicted of certain crimes. 
So say you commit a burglary and are sent to prison in Texas. Under Texas law, and it differs by each state, officials are gonna take a little swab from the inside of your cheek and your genetic profile is gonna be entered into this database. Now say you raped a woman 10 years prior to that and were never caught. If police were able to obtain a DNA profile from evidence in that rape case and it's been entered into CODIS, this database is gonna match your recently entered genetic profile to that profile from the rape case. Police do confirmation tests and there you have it. You're now the prime suspect in a rape. So while so far there hasn't been a match in Margaret's case, there could be one in the future if the killer gets in trouble with the law and is required to submit a sample. Of course, there's also a chance the killer's dead, his secret buried with him. Still, Renee prays that her grandmother's murder can be solved. My hope is that there will be somebody that knew something a long time ago that did, was afraid to give it up, and maybe now they feel the time has passed enough that they could come forward. Because somebody has to know besides the person that committed it. She's heartbroken that her grandmother never got a chance to meet her great-grandchildren. And she can't understand why a woman who suffered so much loss in her life, who had buried two children and a husband, would be robbed of a peaceful passing, instead dying at the hands of a killer. She had so much heartache, and it's just like, why? You know, it just, I just, it just doesn't seem right. How could somebody have to go through all of that and then to die the way she died? You know, it just doesn't seem right. If you have information about Margaret Terry's murder, please call Fort Worth Police Cold Case Detective Jeremy Roden at 817-392-4307. Thank you for listening. Check back next month for a new episode of Out of the Cold. Out of the Cold is produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Lee Williams, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd.